As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, it's been a while since we've just sort of had a uh, macro state of the economy episode, but I think now is a very good time for it. Yeah, absolutely. So we are recording this on December 14th, literally two hours after the Fed's latest decision in which they hiked by 50 basis points. That was widely expected. But what wasn't as expected was the CPI number that we got just yesterday, which came in, I think the headline figure was 7.1%, which was lower than expected. Right. So a pretty big week. I mean, the story, the big macro story is everyone's waiting for some clear sign of inflation deceleration. Everybody is trying to figure out, you know, is the Fed going to pivot and what pivot Mm -hmm. even means, which I think is a contested word. And so I would say a pretty big week because, as you say, we got an inflation report, uh, a Fed announcement, press conference, all of that. And so I think a good moment to take stock of uh, where we are in these stories. Right. Is this a turning point in the sort of high inflation, interest rate hiking cycle narrative that we've had for some time? And the fact that I've said turning point means that, and the fact that we're doing an episode on this means that it's probably going to amount to nothing. (laughs) And I've cursed it. But but you never know. We keep setting ourselves up for the jinx right now. So we have all of our bases covered. But anyway, I think we should just get right into it because Mm -hmm. we have two great guests, two of the people we most like to turn to on these big macro questions. We've spoken to them many times over the years. We're going to be speaking with two guests. Tim Dewey is the chief U.S. economist at SGH Macro Advisors, as well as a professor of practice in economics at the University of Oregon, and John Turek, the founder of JST Advisors and the author of The Cheap Convexity Substack, which is a must-read. Tim and John, thank you both for coming on. Well, thank you for having us. Thank you, Jeff. Absolutely. So, why don't you know? I'll throw a question out for both of you, but like really simple. We just, uh, just as we're talking, wrapped up Powell's press conference. Uh, why don't you sort of give us your summary? You know, you start with Tim, but both of you can go. Of like, what did we just learn from Powell? Well, that's a um, <laughs> okay. So, we'll, <laughs> what did we learn from Powell? Uh, so no, no, you know I think you know the, I think the main thing that that we really learned from Paul is that they are very much committed to this idea that they need to hold rates you know uh, at a at a restrictive level for for an extended period of time, uh, and then we also know that they're closing in on what they think that level is, and and so you know what this seems to be coming down to is causing, you know, deliberately causing something that, that looks very much like a recession. Although Paul, Paul won't say that it's, it's something in, in the forecast, which is interesting now because it's going to um, create some questions uh, given this disinflationary trend we're seeing in the data. It's really going to, you know, people are going to start asking, well, why do you need to create a recession here? Right. John. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I think of it, I took away three key things from today. I mean, I think that one is that they are kind of transitioning from this where is terminal to how long to stay there stage. And I think that that really was, I think, most put forward by the fact that Powell seemed very open to going in 25 bit intervals 
starting at the February next FOMC meeting. So that, you know, along with the commentary, the press conference does make it seem like they're in the ballpark of what they deem to be sufficiently restrictive. I think the second thing is that they are seemingly looking at this at least ex ante as that they want to stay at five around 5% Fed funds for a while. And then third, I think the interesting thing from the dots to me, you know, obviously one can point to an interesting 2023 core PC number, but I think, you know, most interesting to me is that if you look at the real rates for 23 and 24 using Fed funds and their core PC projection, it's 160 basis points for both years. So I think in terms of defining what sufficiently restrictive this sort of vague, maybe dynamic term means, I think they gave you a pretty good insight into the level that they seemingly are going to be targeting that's, you know, equates to inflation back at target over the medium term. So this is something that I wanted to ask both of you, but I, I feel like there are a lot of terms that, you know, we throw around mm. now without really like digging into them very much. I mean, transitory inflation was one of them from last year. And now we're talking about transitory deflation, uh, which is kind of amazing. But can we talk about restrictive? Like, mm. what exactly do we mean when we talk about the Fed moving to a restrictive policy? That can be for either of you. I'll <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, let Tim yeah. take it. No, well, well, it's it's unfortunate that the Fed doesn't doesn't seem to entirely know when when they're going to be restricted, right? So, so how are they going to figure this out? And it it's it's the case that they're looking for this this rate that they think will create downward pressure on the labor market, sustain downward pressure on the labor market, and the desire is to get wage growth down in order to really reduce the inflationary pressures that they think are going to persist if if unemployment stays this low but but, but what is that rate uh you know i think the the best way to think about it is is maybe like like john was saying that maybe it's a real rate of 160 basis points but but i don't know if we we should have a lot of conviction in that number yeah i, I you know i think that it is sort of this you know feel your way around you know even in the context of what i you know, message I took away from the SCP today, you know, I think that what I think Loretta Mester actually set up a decent way of thinking about it in sort of these like broad strokes. And in my notes to clients, I kind of called it like the, the Mester roadmap, but it's basically this idea is that once the Fed gets to a rate that has, as Tim says, you know, sustained downward pressure on the labor market, sustained downward pressure on economic activity, they can basically tee off this handoff from below trend growth to slowing wage growth to slowing inflation. And I think that is sort of the sequencing is that they're trying to achieve. And they can only really know which level is doing that in real time. Of course, they'll have model estimates that will guide them. And we'll see, you know, we'll, I'm sure we'll see a Kashkari blog, you know, following this meeting on what that <laughs> level looks like. But I think that, you know, broadly speaking, it's going to be very much informed by the data. And this is something that I think, you know, a, a takeaway for me from this meeting is that, you know, sufficiently restrictive is not a, you know, it's it's not an absolute level. It's a, it's a dynamic level. And I think, you know, going into, you know, next two years, staying still may actually include moving, but we can get into that. Hmm. Later. <laughs> well, let me back up a little bit because sitting us on the Fed, let's talk about um, the day before on Tuesday, we got that CPI report that Tracy mentioned in the beginning Core CPI on a month over month basis came in at just 0.2%. Headline obviously influenced a lot by the plunge in oil prices, which can only go so far, I guess. Uh, just 0.1%. Tim, is this like when you look at this report, are you optimistic? Are there reasons to be optimistic that this is the start of a sustainable trend or is this noise? Yeah, certainly when I look at the report, I have to be sort of honest to. Uh, you know, the approach I was taking last year right. uh, or earlier this year. And, you know, when when I saw those inflation numbers start to, to rise and I saw what I call super core inflation, right? Uh, uh, core inflation minus uh, housing and autos. 
you know, I, I really started to say, you know, we can't ignore, you know, this inflation is transitory. Mm-hmm. And and I'm in kind of the same position as right now is that we've seen a lot of improvement in, in that super core and uh, narrowing of, of some inflationary pressures. And so it does seem to me like there has been a change. Now, whether or not that's persistent, we'll, we'll find out. But I do think you kind of have to have to take the number of face value and say, yeah, there seem to be fewer the lessening of inflationary pressures, at least in the near term here. So one of the things that Powell said today was, you know, he was talking about how there's this expectation that services inflation is going to be tough to bring down because the labor market is so strong and wage growth is still relatively high. And that's the thing that kind of feeds into overall prices. I mean, that implies that the Fed is explicitly going to be targeting like a softening of the labor market, right? I, I was thinking that this is a way you can sort of t- tell that the the Fed is hawkish, right? Yeah. Is that they're 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 very much focused on getting inflation down, even at the at the cost of getting unemployment higher, you know, considerably higher, and you know, that's that's I think you know the what right. definitely they're trying to achieve here. So. Inflation is starting to come down, but for the past year or so, we've been told that the reason the Fed needs to be so aggressive is because they're worried about expectations becoming embedded. They're worried about a wage price spiral. But the fact that core seems to be beginning to come down, does that suggest that maybe those concerns were overblown? That's going to be the question that people start to ask. If core is coming down and the Fed's sort of backing down to this argument that that we really need to get this this uh, lower level of core inflation, right, core, uh, C, uh, services minus um, X housing down, it's going to cause some some concern about, well, why why is that now the, the measure of underlying inflation? Why should we be focused on that and not, in fact, the idea that maybe uh, we can return to a 2018, 2019 right. type of environment? And the Fed doesn't hasn't changed the narrative to 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 allow that to happen yet. So I think it, it's going to be a question that's increasingly important as overall core inflation if it remains low. I like two things on this. I, I, I think that like Tim said, it's absolutely right. You know, I think that there are really like two reasons for why you know this rendition won't just be the reciprocal of sort of the you know inflation rising period of you know late last year, early this year. I think one, and this is why I think the Fed is so emphatic on showing us that they're going to be looking at, you know, services XOER sort of this like core labor market trend, is because the Fed knows that the labor market is not a tailwind to achieving their goals. It's a headwind. So given the state of where nominal wage growth is, it's much harder to have, you know, conviction that inflation is going to settle back at 2% when nominal wage growth is five and a half. Whereas we flip it to where the Fed was, you know, in late last year, early this year, it was it was becoming pretty obvious that, you know, inflation would be, even if there were transitory factors, it had this structural tailwind from a very robust labor market. So, you know, in terms of comparing then to now, I think it's it makes sense for at least like in terms of a range of outcomes for the Fed to be more hesitant into embracing this trend disinflation versus them accepting trend higher inflation because the labor market dynamic is feeding into one and not the other. And I, I think the second thing is, you know, on inflation expectations, you know, such a big part of it. And this is something I think that, you know, Powell's been really pounding the table on really, I think, since June when they made their initial rise to 75 is that he said that above target inflation in terms of expectations is not only about trend, but it's about level. And then from there, it's like a ticking clock in terms of in terms of its feed through to inflation expectations. Whereas if you allow inflation to remain above target for three or four years, even though it's headed in the right direction, that level can be a nuisance in terms of inflation expectations and making sure that inflation is anchored at 2%. So I, I think that you know it, it, there are, you know, similarities to playing that this is the reciprocal of the bullwhip in goods, this is the reciprocal to the bullwhip in rents. But 
at the margin there are more factors for the Fed to be hesitant in this full embrace of the early signs of a meaningful right. disinflation. Especially because they got they got burned on that last year too. Right. So right. you know that's they're they're this has always been, I think, you know, a, a, a risk is not a risk, though the likelihood that the Fed was going to, you know, was going to hold hold the line here for longer than 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 maybe market participants thought appropriate, simply because they thought the risk of of letting inflation get out of control, and, and Paul reiterated that uh, reiterated that today was just simply too high. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I want to talk more about labor. And Tim, this is a question for you. So right now, the unemployment rate is 3.7%. And in the press conference, I don't think like Powell like specifically talked about a soft landing per se, or I don't know if you use that term, but he did seem to express some hope that we need to see some weakening of the labor market, but that maybe it could just be a little because all, you know, the labor market's really tight in his view. There's all these unfilled job openings. There's a structural shortage of workers. So maybe we just need a little bit of tilt. What does history say? Can we just get a modest increase in the unemployment rate to like the low fours? Or if we start to see that pick up in the unemployment rate, does history say it's going to go up substantially more than that? Yeah, I, I would say that that the history is is not the Fed's favor here. Uh, yeah. that that you really can't guide the unemployment rate, you know, three tenths or or five tenths of the uh, of, a, of a percentage point higher, let alone 0.9 percent right. points higher. So, uh, you know, I I just don't think that this sort of soft landing idea is is, is a likely outcome here. Um, I, I would like it to be, right. uh, but but to me, it, it's, it seems to be screaming against um, uh, what, what we've seen in the past. Yeah, Tracy, I'm just looking at the Fed's SEP, the Summary of Economic Projections, and it anticipates the unemployment rate peaking at, like, you know, hitting four, we're at 3.7 now, going to 4.6 next year and the year after that, and then going down a bit. So there's like this idea that we just get a little bit, you know, Mm -hmm. 1% is not nothing, Mm -hmm. especially the people who have lost their jobs. But, you know, the story the Fed is telling is that the unemployment rate will be contained. Well, this is something else I wanted to ask about, which is, you know, we hear comments from the Fed a lot now about how monetary policy operates with a lag. Mm. And that to me seems like as big a question as the transitory inflation question that we were discussing, you know, a year or two ago, like how long is the inflation going to last? How long is it actually going to take interest rate hikes to have an effect? Do we have like a good sense of that? Like the the fact that we've saw CPI come in less than expected yesterday, is that the a sign that monetary policy is working? Is it a sign that monetary policy has the potential to overshoot and, you know, cause the recession that everyone seems to be worried about? I think that, you know, broadly, the long and variable lag question is just very hard to answer. I I, I don't think there is a clean one. 
I think that there is this assumption that the Fed is like talking and central banks broadly are talking about about long and variable lags in the sense of, you know, well, we should slow down and then wait six months and you'll have more apparent evidence. And, and you have seen it across the world. I mean, the Bank of Canada has recently transitioned from saying that you can feel the monetary policy tightening and just the interest rate sensitive sectors of the economy to now the whole economy is starting to feel it. So I think there's like, conceptually, it makes a lot of sense. I, I don't think that there's like a strong empirical approach to say, okay, you know, T minus nine months, this is when we'll start to feel the whole thing. I think that the way the Fed is thinking about long variable lags, and maybe I'll be more specific to the leadership, is I think the way the Fed thinks about long variable lags is you kind of hope to engineer this this handoff to pro-cyclical tightening. And what I mean by that is that basically you let the disinflation that's occurring basically raise your real effective funds rate. Mm. And I think that the Fed is now at the point where the long invariable lags is that now you're starting to see the data at least begin to cooperate with them. There has been some softening, not a lot, but there has been some softening in the labor market. There's definitely less churn, as we can see from continuing claims. Jolts have come down a lot. The inflation data is starting to look a lot better than it did three months ago. And now I think from the Fed's long and variable lags, quote unquote, perspective is it's about, you know, exerting real positive policy rates across the curve and letting that sort of serve as this, the, the, the new form or, or anchored form of tightening more than, you know, now what we've been doing now, which is rate hikes. I want to go back to the theoretical question about whether some sort of immaculate disinflation is possible or whether we can have inflation return to trend without a big jump in the unemployment rate. I mean, again, just going back to the last few weeks, so we got a, you know, pretty a good uh, November CPI report. We also had that hot wage growth number from the recent non-farm payrolls report. I mean, again, we're pulling out of just very few data points. Like, you, I don't think you could tell a tremendous story from one CPI report or two CPI reports and one wage number in the non-farm payrolls report. But I don't know. It looks to me like you can have both, that you can have this period where wages are growing robustly, where the unemployment rate is low and some sort of rollover. What would it take for the Fed, I guess the, my question would be, to say, you know what? Maybe it's possible. Maybe we don't need to induce a recession or maybe we don't need to see much of an increase in the unemployment rate at all. What would it take uh, for the Fed to look at, you know, how many more of these cool CPI reports would it need to be before maybe the Fed started believing in the possibility of a soft landing? That's a, that's a that's a question I ask myself a lot for exactly that reason is you have seen some improvement in, in the inflation numbers and it seems like it's almost premature, right? Is that right, right. We had been expecting and the Fed had been expecting that that improvement would really follow uh, the labor market. And it's coming, you know, it's coming ahead of, you know, what we see as any any significant loosening of the labor market. And the, the Fed's going to be worried, and and I think rightly so, that, you know, persistently high inflation, or excuse me, persistently high wage growth, if not matched by you know, uh, sufficiently high productivity growth, is over time, going to lead to upward pressure on inflation, upward pressure on inflation expectations. Uh, and that the, basically the argument that, that wages and, and inflation are, are, are tied together in the long run. And what we could be seeing in the short run is uh, all the slippages that, that can happen. So you could think of uh, you know higher wages being resolved through lower margins, right? Margin compression. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I think as you said, it's, it's really hard to make anything, any clear decisions off of, of, of just a couple of months the data, but you know the Fed will have a, I think, a, a harder time selling that story going forward. You know, again, if if inflation continues low, especially if if those core services uh, inflation numbers uh, start to soften more, then that's that's going to be something. It's it's going to be harder to explain. When did we start calling it immaculate disinflation? I don't know. That's a good, who came up with that? I think like the earliest mention I could, I was curious because this is the like second or third time I've heard it just today. But I, the earliest I can find is actually Matt Klein in his newsletter. Um, oh, it sounds like a summer's thing. I feel like, but it could be Matt Klein. <laughs> yeah, it, <laughs> it does, doesn't it? You might be right. 
So I wanted to ask about financial conditions as well, because, I mean, this is something that has come up. Neil Kashkari talked about it on on this podcast, talking about how he was happy to see the fall in stocks, which fed into a tightening of financial conditions. And of course, monetary policy is supposed to work through either loosening or tightening financial conditions. But in recent weeks, we've seen those conditions start to loosen again as bonds are rallying. Stocks have been rallying up until today. It looks like the S&P 500 is down a bit after the Fed meeting. But John, this is for you in particular, because I know you were very, very focused on the stronger dollar over the summer, and you had argued that the strong dollar would end up doing some of the Fed's work when it comes to tightening financial conditions for it. But now that the dollar in particular is softening and financial conditions in general are loosening, does the Fed need to be concerned about that? Do they need to try to move to offset that? It's a good question. I I, I don't think so. Um, and I, I think that, you know, from the Fed's perspective, at least, you know, looking at it in dollar terms or U.S. dollar terms is it really almost was job done. I mean, we can, of course, you know, add in that China being effectively shut down for a lot of the years certainly helped commodity pressure come off. We can also add in that the SPR, a tremendous amount of relief to oil markets. But, you know, I think in, in terms of the commodity super cycle that was being pitched, the dollar did neuter a lot of the right tail in, you know, the broader commodity complex. And just looking at, you know, the Bloomberg Commodity Index, it's all from, you know, material amount from its highs. So I, I think in those terms, the Fed has achieved a lot. Um, I think, you know, thinking about the financial conditions question, and this is one I actually, you know, get a lot because we have had a non-trivial move and, you know, and looking at something like the Goldman FCI's basket, you know, over the last few weeks, I think the way to think about it, and I think the way the Fed is broadly thinking about it is that FCI's are sort of this, this relative term, and they're relative to the spot labor market data and the spot inflation data. And if FCI's were loosening in the context of the inflation data getting worse, or the unemployment, or the employment stuff getting better, I think that would be at odds with something that the Fed is looking for. But, you know, a point that I've been making over the last few weeks, if the FCIs have sort of been, quote unquote, earned in terms of a slight improvement in the labor market and a more than slight improvement in the inflation data, even though it's only the last two months, then I think that's something that it's not necessarily equals like the Fed is going to fight or you're going to, it requires Powell to sound like he did at Jackson Hole. I, I mean, I think a pretty telling thing for me was when Powell came out in Brookings and everyone was expecting him to, you know, beat the hammer on financial conditions, assuming that they loosened too much. He didn't, and I think that part of the reason he didn't is that this is different than it was in July and August, when there wasn't really any compelling evidence that inflation was falling. We actually saw two months of 0.6s after, and the claims move from that went saw, you know, initial claims reached 250k went back to 210 basically over the course of a month. And then it was more of a reaction function question. How serious is the Fed? Is the Fed willing to do what it takes? And then Powell came out of Jackson Hole and told you, we're going to do what it takes. That's not really the question now. The market has full confidence that the Fed will do what it takes looking at you know, either forward inflation swaps or break-even rates. The question now is, is how much earned financial conditions can you loosening can you have? And that is, I think, data dependent. And I think that that's I think that's going to be the way this shakes out over the next few months. So Just on this note, and this can be for either of you, but looking at the market reaction today, you know, stocks went up a bit right after the decision was announced and they've come back down since then. But in terms of the market reaction, as the as the data, assuming the data starts to change and evolve and we do see sustained deflation and maybe even a little bit of weakness in the labor market, is the Fed going to be able to continue to convince the market that it is, in fact, hawkish? Because that seems to be what it's trying to do, right? It needs to maintain expectations, put pressure on financial conditions and things like that. But is it going to be able to do that as the data starts to change? 
I think this gets to to John's point is that the if the if the data is moving in a disinflationary direction, the market's going to go with that uh, because they're going to assume that sooner or later the Fed is going to catch up to mm. to that approach, and it's it's really you know more problematic for the Fed if if the market's just not getting the Fed's reaction function right. Mm. You know where again there could be some tension here is if the Fed is if, excuse me if the markets are looking at you know core inflation and the Fed's looking at this you know this this um, services x housing component uh would be would be more interesting in a space where there could be you know room for for confusion but you know, I, I think you know once the data turns um or the market starts to sense the data is turning the fed's just going to have a hard time you know selling selling that story it cuts both ways too if if the data firms here you know, lower prices cause consumer spending to rise um for example or real terms in real terms they could sort of um tighten back up financial conditions well i joked about this over the weekend but i don't know you know it's kind of only half a joke or half a troll about, you know, we've had this big plunge in gasoline prices and maybe because of that, maybe some of that is softening demand. I don't know. But for some people, that's like a huge financial shot in the arm. I mean, that's like a, a, a lot, you know, that's more money left in the wallet each week. And so, you know, I think what could cause the data to firm? <laughs> maybe it's uh, falling gasoline prices. But Tim, I want to, you know, I want to go back to something you said, you know, you think about, okay, what are some ways we could have like, a soft landing. And one of them would be if we got some period of like catch up productivity. And we know that productivity, I think, has been pretty bad. What's your story for why productivity has been bad? And is there a possibility that whatever caused that could flip in some way and then we get a big spike in productivity? Yeah, so productivity is measured as residual, you know, right. of, of GDP growth and, and employment. So, yeah. you know, how 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 um, you know how confident we are of that number should should always be in question. But it does look like productivity has been weaker uh, this year. And you know, I, I I don't know that anyone has some some hugely great explanation for this. I think that when you kind of run the economy too hot, you run it inefficiently, and that seems to be to me what, what was going on. You have to you have a lot of churn in the labor market. Uh, maybe you've got some new new employees, some younger employees, and they're just not as efficient, you know, and and they're struggling against stronger demand. So that that erodes your your relative um, productivity. So I, th- I think I think that's a a reasonable story, and then theory could could you know ease back up if if people got some breathing breathing room on demand, right? So I think you know, that's something that goes on. To, to me, if you want a soft landing. Uh, the most important thing is is getting the Fed to believe that you can have a soft landing. Right. Um, you know, right right now the Fed's. I mean, they're saying that you, you can have a soft landing, but again, we we can debate whether or not the the, the rise in unemployment that they have penciled in is 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 consistent with that outlook. And I would say say no. But you know, what I'd like to see for soft landing is for the Fed to to believe you know fully that they just do not have to keep hiking rates and could cut them sooner than they anticipate. Tim, I want to ask you about this as well. So setting aside the prospect of a soft landing, which has now been rebranded as immaculate disinflation, it, it feels like the the big concern or fear for the Fed would be significant stagflation. So inflation combined with you know negative economic growth. What would they do in that scenario? Powell has 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 said the, the the objective here would be to bring inflation back down to trend. You know, I think that if you had a, a real stagflationary episode, how the Fed depended would really depend upon what they thought was happening with inflation expectations. So if you had you know elevated inflation this year going going into this is suppose elevated inflation was 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 something we were, were still experienced and then suddenly the unemployment got rate was rising you know the fed would start to think well you know a higher unemployment rate should pull down these inflation numbers and so so the the key in there would be what would ha- what would be happening with inflation expectations now if, if the fed could could be confident that 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 they can focus on the employment mandate without worrying so much about the the, the inflation mandate because they thought that was going down then they could you know pursue an easier policy but if they saw inflation expectations rising um they would they would pursue a a, a more aggressive policy John you know, one of the things that Paul was asked about was, uh, you know, we're talking about how many more hikes, but he was asked about cuts. And there still seems to be this tension between what the Fed officials have said and what market pricing have said. And so, you know, all year, 
the Fed is like, what are you guys even talking about? We're not anywhere close to thinking about cuts, or at least that's basically my summary of like, it's like, we're not, you know, we're not, we're nowhere close. And yet the market seems to be pricing in uh, rate cuts and not even very far out. In fact, you have an inversion of the three month, two year curve, which means, you know, uh, rates in the uh, fairly short next couple of years lower than they are right now or over the next three months in some way. Like, what do you make of this divergence? Because it's been a story, I think, for several months, this gap between rhetoric and market pricing. Right, right. No, it's a good point. And I think that there's there's two parts to it. I think that, that the and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it in stage terms. And the first stage of this was really the middle to Q3 of this year part, where the market kept saying is like, okay, there are going to be cuts in X amount of time. And I think that was really a byproduct of the market's assumption that given all of this fixed income volatility, given the rapid increases in the federal funds rate, that something was going to break, whether it be the labor market, whether it be a financial accident, as we saw in the UK, something of that nature would break and the Fed would have to unwind some of the things that it did. And that's why we always, even you know, looking as far back as June, we always kind of assumed that cuts couldn't be more than nine to 12 months away. Yeah. Um, and I think what is happening now, which is different than that first stage, and I, I think is actually a little bit more sustainable, is the Fed is basically not officially, but you can glean into the fact that the cycle is almost over. And from the market's perspective, once the mark, once the Fed convinced, conveys to the market that Powell's preference is probably for 25 in February. Then the market has to trade with a percentage chance that March is a pause, a very reasonable percentage chance given what is seemingly the trend of you know, disinflation, at least through Q1. Um, and then from there, the waiting game, the market is always going to trade the skew that either a hard landing or a soft landing will happen. And in both of those cases, the Fed isn't at 5% forever. You know, the way I've kind of looked at it is, is that there's three potentials for next year. There's the no landing, the soft landing, and the hard landing. The no landing is sort of we find ourselves in a similar world to where we are now, where inflation is, you know, too not convincingly on its way back to two. Nominal wage growth is still five and a half percent, and the Fed is just kind of stuck. The soft landing is that you sort of get into this 2019 world where the immaculate disinflation does somewhat take place. And then you could see yourself as, you know, Goldman Sachs's Q4 forecast for, you know, core PC next year is 2.9. And the Fed could feel at 2.9, the 5, 5 and change is a bit too high in terms of, the, you know, how restrictive policy needs to be. And that could lead to cuts. And then in the hard landing scenario, we obviously know that they cut a lot. So from the market's perspective, once you told them that there's really not that many more hikes left, maybe just 25 or 50 basis points, the market's going to lean into the skew of mm. cuts. It's just a fraction of time. Yeah, there's there's really nothing that the Fed I think can can do about that at a certain at a certain point. I agree. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So 
you know, we've been focused on the Fed for obvious reasons, but John, I know you've been in particular looking at some other central banks and you referred to the Central Bank of New Zealand, the Reserve Bank over there as something of a, a North Star in terms of the read across to other major central banks. You know, it was one of the first to actually start hiking rates. Can you maybe talk a little bit about what we've learned from the experience of central banks X U.S.? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, you know, there, there, there have been a few interesting examples, I would say, over the last few months. I would say that the RBNZ sort of in both ways, either in terms of their policy trajectory has been sort of this North Star, as you said. But I also think that, you know, for me, sort of in like, you know, thinking about the trajectory of the cycle and, you know, what is the sort of the next phase of, you know, of trading interest rates, Um you know, I think the RBNZ in November was a pretty telling meeting in terms of how the market is digesting this potential inflection point in the cycle. Because um, with the what happened to the RBNZ in November is that they accelerated their hiking pace from 50 to 75 from a place that was already restrictive, and then in their monetary policy statement and their you know their forecasts for the economy over the next few years, they said that they see the terminal rate in New Zealand being close to six percent. So this was a, a very big re-rate in terms of both the actual hiking uh, actual hikes that they did and in terms of the hiking cycle in its totality and the market's reaction to that which for most of this year would have been you know rates at the very front of the curve ratchet higher actually rates you know yields increased on the day but actually didn't make a new high relative to where they were in October and September even though given there's new marginal information and the RBNZ was much more hawkish than I think many market participants thought of so I think, you know, in terms of where, you know, using these leading arrows, but also getting a feel for sort of what the distribution is in terms of markets, I think the RBNZ was very telling in terms of, you know, how the cycle, at least the hiking cycle towards the end of the hiking cycle is going to be traded. And I think that, you know, broadly speaking, you know, central banks around the world now is that there we're going to be in this divergence period where, you know, there are central banks that are going to see very clear and obvious signs of growth deceleration, and there are going to be central banks that don't. And I would probably put the Fed in the don't camp, whereas it's not obvious to me that, you know, GDP next year is on track to run it as the Fed thinks 0.5%. You know, I think as Joe was sort of cheekily alluding to earlier is that, you know, there's some pretty decent impulse for growth, given that the composition shift <laughs> is getting a lot more healthier in real terms. And if you can sort of get a little bit less financial market volatility, you can maintain some decent real income growth, which we have sort of seen now since July, then I think the economy can do you know, pretty well. Whereas you know, places like the UK, even Canada, places with you know, very high you know, private debt levels relative to GDP and have a lot of or intense you know, floating rate mortgage exposure, you know, that those places are going to feel growth in a very different way. And those central banks, I think, will be quicker to be like, listen, we have to be a little bit more two-way in terms of, you know, how we uh, approach the cycle. So I think it's going to be, I think there are still North Stars, but I think we're entering a period of pretty meaningful divergence where That's interesting. I think the economic performance is going to be just very different across the world. So Tim, I have I have one last question. I'll aim it at you, but you know, this idea and you sort of hinted at it, which is that if, you, if we were to get more data points like the November CPI report that indicate, okay, it looks like there's a meaningful slowdown, then regardless of what happens on the labor market, the Fed might start to believe it, that something is real. But just how are you thinking about the next few months? So we don't have another uh, decision again until February, then in, one in March. Like, just like, why don't you talk us through like your sketch for how you're thinking about, you know, the first quarter of the first half of next year? Right. So I'm, I'm expecting a, a 25 basis point rate hike at the, the February meeting. Uh, and then, you know, beyond that, you know, getting to, you know, the Fed's current terminal rate involves, you know, rate hikes of that magnitude in, in March, March and May as well. 
And uh, at, at this juncture, I'm finding it increasingly difficult to see that. First, you know, if these inflation numbers are sticky, you know, sticky on the downside here, uh, you know, the the it's going to be you know much more problematic for for the Fed to you know, continue raising rates. And then if we you know over that period of time, we could see some some labor market softening. Now, the interesting question to me now is is to how, what extent the firming we're going to see in this data overrides any any softening we're seeing in, in labor markets right now. And John, John mentioned some of those signs earlier. And if those signs stick, I mean, if we are getting job growth down to, you know, sub, you know, closer to 100,000 uh, a month, as the, even as the economy firms, then I think the Fed's going to be hard pressed to keep keep raising rates after after uh, certainly after March. And that's that's the, the the kind of setup that I'm looking for is that we see some of these continued uh, evidence of, of labor market softening that gives the Fed some room to to pause. But they're going to want to be confident that 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 softening is going to continue. So I do think they're going to want to see the economy slowing, uh, and and the the it's 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 not evident to me that that's that's going to happen. So this is a similar question, but directed to both of you. What's the one number or economic indicator that you're watching for signs of a soft landing that will allow the Fed to potentially ease up on rate hikes? And please don't just say inflation. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'll, I'll go with one. I mean, I think that, you know, I'll go with I'll go with ECI because I think that that's the way Powell sort of categorized how he sees a soft landing in Brookings. I, I think the interesting thing about Brookings, and I think if you juxtapose Brookings with the SEP, is you kind of get a glean into what the Fed wants versus what the Fed feels they need to say. And I think the SEP is more a reflection of what the Fed thinks they need to say mm. in terms of commitment and credibility versus if you listen to Powell's talk at Brookings, you don't get the sense that he truly believes that he needs the unemployment rate to go to 46 to get inflation closer to target. And I think for the Fed, the question is going to be at 5.5% or close to 6% nominal wage growth, the Fed does not believe that that is consistent with 2% inflation. So to me, the Fed's chances of a soft landing will be, to me, very dependent on how the inflation data evolves post a lot of this you know, more transitory noise in, uh, in the goods and rent side to some extent, but also, you know, what does wage growth look like in the middle of next year? And I think that will sort of set the stage, not necessarily for how long, how many more hikes there are, but how long they stay at this very elevated level of rates. Tim? Yeah, I, I would actually, I mean, I don't don't want to repeat the same thing, <laughs> but I do think, you know, the, the, the clear evidence that that you're, John's right. I mean, in, in theory, if if wages were to come down, wage growth was to decelerate. And so, you know, what what where could we see that other than than just the uh, ECI number? So, you know, one place that could be somewhere it shows up is, you know, and it's already declining is the, is the, the quits rate. Uh, so, you know, presumably when people, you know, quit a job for another job, that the next job has a higher, higher wage. And so even if you got the quits rate down, you'd probably, you know, get, get wage growth decelerated and, and something like that could help convince the Fed that they did not need a recession, right? So, so the, the theme here is, you know, what does the Fed need to see to believe they don't need, you know, unemployment at, at four and a half percent or four excuse me four point seven percent and and the answer is is probably you know wage growth would be the most likely place that we can hope to see that john and tim thank you so much for coming on the podcast it's always great talking to you and particularly timely conversation to understand what i think is a, a pretty important moment a pretty important week in this story so uh, thank you both for coming on odd Lock. thank you guys thank you again for having us yeah thanks so much guys that yeah, was great that was great Always great to talk with John and Tim. I mean, I think that last point from Tim is sort of the key thing, and it's still sort of the big question, which is, will other signs emerge 
that convinced the Fed that there can be some sort of durable decline in inflation without a meaningful jump in unemployment. So maybe it's a decline in the quits rate. Maybe it's other measures of wages. Maybe it's something with job openings, et cetera. Maybe it's just the employment cost index. But it does feel like those are the things to watch. Because look, the soft landing can't be, as long as unemployment rate is at 3.7%, you can't rule out the soft landing scenario. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that I thought was interesting was the idea of the sort of um, discrepancy potentially between what the market's looking at versus the Fed. Yeah. Because that seems like, you know, today might be kind of an example of it where the Fed came out pretty hawkish and the initial reaction at least was stocks went up. They've since gone down. Mm -hmm. But like you do wonder as the data starts to change whether or not that's going to become more of a theme and whether or not it's going to complicate some of what the Fed's trying to do here. I really liked John's explanation of this sort of seeming, you know, speaking of market divergence, of you have Fed officials saying, look, we're not talking about rate cuts at all. We're not even done with the hiking <laughs> cycle. And yet the market is priced, you know, on some level, the market is pricing rate cuts before too long. And I like, you know, the sketch of the, the three, the no landing, the soft landing, and the hard landing. And if you sort of like figure that Okay, the hiking cycle is sort of maybe coming to an end, probably, right? We're not that far from the final hike, maybe 25 in February and March or something like that. Then at some point, you know, there is some chance, the spread, that we go into hard landing scenario and that um, the Fed would have to cut. Yeah. I, I mean, there are like these kind of weird discrepancies that are starting to yeah. emerge from the forecast. So like – the PCE forecast, I think, went up, but like the growth mm -hmm. forecast right. went down, yeah, which seems strange. I do feel like we talked a lot about the past year as being like difficult for central banks, but I actually think next year could be even more difficult well, just because you have yeah. all these different moving parts. And I know you were joking about gas prices, <laughs> putting money back into people's pockets, but like it does seem that as these trends start to change and, you know, maybe services inflation is still going up, but consumer goods inflation starts to yeah. fall, there is like a weird interaction that could start to happen where like, you know, maybe people who work in the services industry are getting more money. And so they start spending more on consumer goods yeah. again. The like, no landing scenario. Well, there's it's like so, a real possibility. <laughs> there are no. so many moving parts. You know, I was glad that you asked that question about international central banks, because I thought that was John's, you know, the a year of divergence. You know, all, all the central banks have been sort of like rowing in the same direction, so to speak, this mm -hmm. year. They're all in inflation fighting mode. But again, on this point, you know, you have these other countries where the economy is super rate sensitive because so many people have adjustable rate mortgages. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, you could imagine Canada and the UK, the UK. et cetera, where the economies mm -hmm. really get hit by higher rates. But if you have this situation, like you're, you know, you just sort of described, where actually the US consumer hangs in there pretty well because they're all getting a price cut on gasoline and there isn't really that pass through from rates to mortgages the way there is here. And so you have weakness for the rest of the world. It also made me wonder, it's like, well, does that mean the dollar is gonna rise? We didn't really talk more. <laughs> Markets much, but that would sort of possibly be an implication if other central banks feel like they have to cut rates or well, slow them faster while the Fed is saying, look, U.S. consumers doing all right. Anyway, all kinds of interesting possibilities for 2023 there. Well, I also think the big wild card is what China does here yeah. because we've seen such a huge pivot on COVID-19 yeah. restrictions. Are they going to pivot when it comes to monetary policy and fiscal stimulus as well? Like, Right. And then the question is, you know, the re reopening we have as of right now. West Texas oil, 77. Last Friday, it was around 70. So, we, you know, will China reopening and the gas cut, will that cause oil prices to go up? Plenty of, plenty of moving parts to the macro. Yeah, I was going to say the theme of this episode is moving parts moving in parts. macro. The I world like is a complicated place. Very much so. Shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guests on Twitter. Tim Dewey, he's at Tim Dewey. John Turek, he's at JTurek18. Follow our producers, Carmen Rodriguez at Carmen Arman and Dash Bennett at Dashbot. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at Podcasts. And... For more Odd Lots content, go to Bloomberg.com 
slash oddlots, where we post the transcripts to the episodes. Tracy and I blog. We even have a newsletter that comes out each Friday. You should go there and subscribe. Thanks for listening. Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.